Dead Sisters by Terry Pratchett Read by Celia Imry Starring three witches, also kings, daggers, crowns, storms, dwarfs, cats, ghosts, spectres, apes, bandits, demons, forests, heirs, jesters, tortures, trolls, turntables, general rejoicing and divers' alarums. The wind howled. Lightning stabbed at the earth erratically, like an inefficient assassin. Thunder rolled back and forth across the dark, rain-lashed hills. The night was as black as the inside of a cat. It was the kind of night you could believe on which gods moved men as though they were pawns on the chessboard of fate. In the middle of this elemental storm, a fire gleamed among the dripping furze bushes, like the madness in a weasel's eye. It illuminated three hunched figures. As the cauldron bubbled, an eldritch voice shrieked, When shall we three meet again? There was a pause. Finally, another voice said in far more ordinary tones, Well, I could do next Tuesday. Through the fathomless deeps of space swim the star-turtle Great Archuan, bearing on its back the four giant elephants who carry on their shoulders the mass of the disc world. A tiny sun and moon spin around them on a complicated orbit to induce seasons, so probably nowhere else in the multiverse is it sometimes necessary for an elephant to cock a leg to allow the sun to go past. Exactly why this should be may never be known. Possibly the creator of the universe got bored with all the usual business of axle inclination, albedos and rotational velocities and decided to have a bit of fun for once. It would be a pretty good bet that the gods of the world like this probably do not play chess, and indeed this is the case. In fact, no gods anywhere play chess. They haven't got the imagination. Gods prefer simple, vicious games where you do not achieve transcendence but go straight to oblivion. A key to the understanding of all religion is that a god's idea of amusement is snakes and ladders with greased rungs. Magic glues the disc world together. Magic generated by the turning of the world itself. Magic wound like silk out of the underlying structure of existence to suture the wounds of reality. A lot of it ends up in the Ramtop Mountains, which stretch from the frozen lands near the hub all the way via a lengthy archipelago to the warm seas which flow endlessly into space over the rim. Raw magic crackles invisibly from peak to peak and earths itself in the mountains. It is the Ramtops that supply the world with most of its witches and wizards. In the Ramtops, the leaves on the trees move even when there is no breeze. Rocks go for a stroll of an evening. Even the land, at times, seems alive. At times, so does the sky. The storm was really giving it everything it had. This was its big chance. It had spent years hanging around the provinces, putting in some useful work as a squall, building up experience, making contacts, 
occasionally leaping out on unsuspecting shepherds or blasting quite small oak trees. Now an opening in the weather had given it an opportunity to strut its hour, and it was building up its role in the hope of being spotted by one of the big climates. It was a good storm. There was quite effective projection and passion there, and critics agreed that if it would only learn to control its thunder, it would be, in years to come, a storm to watch. The woods roared their applause and were full of mists and flying leaves. On nights such as these, the gods, as has already been pointed out, play games other than chess with the fates of mortals and the thrones of kings. It is important to remember that they always cheat, right up to the end. And a coach came hurtling along the rough forest track, jerking violently as the wheels bounced off tree roots. The driver lashed at the team, the desperate crack of his whip providing a rather neat counterpoint to the crash of the tempest overhead. Behind, only a little way behind and getting closer, were three hooded riders. On nights such as this, evil deeds are done. And good deeds, of course, but mostly evil on the whole. On nights such as this, witches are abroad. Well, not actually abroad. They don't like the food and you can't trust the water and the shamans always hog the deck chairs. But there was a full moon resting the ragged clouds and the rushing air was full of whispers and the very broad hint of magic. In the clearing above the forest, the witches spoke thus. I'm babysitting on Tuesday, said the one with no hat, but a thatch of white curls so thick she might have been wearing a helmet. For our Jason's youngest, I can manage Friday. Hurry up with the tea, love em that parched. The junior member of the trio gave a sigh and ladled some boiling water out of the cauldron into the teapot. The third witch patted her hand in a kindly fashion. You said it quite well, she said. Just a bit more work on the screeching. Ain't that right, Nanny Og? Very useful screeching, I thought, said Nanny Og hurriedly. And I can see Goody Wemper, may she rest in peace, gave you a lot of help with the squint. It's a good squint, said Granny Weatherwax. The junior witch, whose name was Magrat Garlic, relaxed considerably. She held Granny Weatherwax in awe. It was known throughout the Ramtop Mountains that Miss Weatherwax did not approve of anything very much. If she said it was a good squint, then Magrat's eyes were probably staring up her own nostrils. Unlike wizards, who like nothing better than a complicated hierarchy, Witches don't go in much for the structured approach to career progression. It's up to each individual witch to take on a girl to hand over the area to when she dies. Witches are not by nature gregarious, at least with other witches, and they certainly don't have leaders. Granny Weatherwax was the most highly regarded of the leaders they didn't have. McGrath's hands shook slightly as she made the tea. Of course, it was all very gratifying, but it was a bit nerve-wracking to start one's working life as village witch between Granny and, on the other side of the forest, Nanny Og. It had been her idea to form a local coven. She felt it was more, well, occult. And to her amazement, the other two had agreed, or at least hadn't disagreed much. An oven? Nanny Og had said. What do we want to join an oven for? She meant a coven, Gaither. 
Granny Weatherwax had explained. You know, like the old days, a meeting. And these are, said Nanny Og, hopefully. No dancing, Granny had warned. I don't hold with dancing, or singing, or getting overexcited, or all that messing about with ointments and similar. Does she good to get out, said Nanny happily. McGrath had been disappointed about the dancing, and was relieved that she hadn't ventured one or two other ideas that had been on her mind. She fumbled in the packet she had brought with her. It was her first Sabbath, and she was determined to do it right. Would anyone care for a scone? she said. Granny looked hard at hers before she bit. McGrath had baked bat designs on it. They had little eyes made of currants. The coach crashed through the trees at the forest edge, ran on two wheels for a few seconds as it hit a stone, righted itself against all the laws of balance and rumbled on. But it was going slower now. The slope was dragging at it. The coachman, standing upright in the manner of a charioteer, pushed his hair out of his eyes and peered through the murk. No one lived up here, in the lap of the ram-tops themselves, but there was a light ahead. By all that was merciful, there was a light there. An arrow buried itself in the coach roof behind him. Meanwhile, King Varence, monarch of Lancre, was making a discovery. Like most people, most people at any rate below the age of sixty or so, Varence hadn't exercised his mind much about what happened to you when you died. Like most people since the dawn of time, he assumed it all somehow worked out all right in the end. And like most people since the dawn of time, he was now dead. He was in fact lying at the bottom of one of his own stairways in Lancre Castle with a dagger in his back. He sat up and was surprised to find that while someone he was certainly inclined to think of as himself was sitting up, something very much like his body remained lying on the floor. It was a pretty good body. Incidentally, now he came to see it from outside for the first time. He'd always been quite attached to it, although, he had to admit, this did not now seem to be the case. It was big and well-muscled. He'd looked after it. He'd allowed it a moustache and long, flowing locks. He'd seen it had got plenty of healthy outdoor exercise and lots of red meat. Now, just when a body would have been useful, it had let him down. Or out. On top of that... He had to come to terms with the tall, thin figure standing beside him. Most of it was hidden in a hooded black robe, but the one arm which extended from the folds to grip a large scythe was made of bone. When one is dead, there are things one instinctively recognises. Hello! Berentz drew himself up to his full height, or what would have been his full height, if that part of him to which the word height could have been applied was not lying stiff on the floor and facing a future in which the only word depth could be appropriate. I am a king, mark you, he said. Was, your majesty. What? Berentz barked. I said was. It's called the past tense. You'll soon get used to it. The tall figure tapped its calcareous fingers on the scythe's handle, was obviously upset about something. If it came to that, Varence thought, so am I. 
but the various broad hints available in his present circumstances were breaking through even the mad, brave stupidity that made up most of his character, and it was dawning on him that whatever kingdom he might currently be in, he wasn't king of it. Are you death, fellow? he ventured. I have many names. Which one are you using at present? said Varence, with a shade more deference. There were people milling around them. In fact, quite a few people were milling through them, like ghosts. Oh, so it was Felmet, the king added vaguely, looking at the figure lurking with obscene delight at the top of the stairs. My father said I should never let him get behind me. Why don't I feel angry? Glad, said Death shortly. Adrenaline and so forth. And emotions. You don't have them. All you have now is thought. The tall figure appeared to reach a decision. This is very irregular. He went on, apparently to himself. However, who am I to argue? Who indeed? What? I said, who indeed? Shut up. Death stood with his skull to one side, as though listening to some inner voice. As his hood fell away, the late king noticed that death resembled a polished skeleton in every way but one. His eye sockets glowed sky blue. Varenz wasn't frightened, however. Not simply because it's difficult to be in fear of anything when the bits you need to be frightened with are curdling several yards away, but because he had never really been frightened of anything in his life and wasn't going to start now. This was partly because he didn't have the imagination, but he was also one of those rare individuals who were totally focused in time. Most people aren't. They live their lives as a sort of temporal blur around the point where their body actually is, anticipating the future or holding on to the past. They're usually so busy thinking about what happens next that the only time they ever find out what is happening now is when they come to look back on it. Most people are like this. They learn how to fear because they can actually tell, down at the subconscious level, what is going to happen next. It's already happening to them. But Varenz had always lived only for the present. Until now, anyway. Death sighed. I suppose no one mentioned anything to you? He hazarded. Say again. No premonitions? Strange dreams, mad old soothsayers shouting things at you in the street. About what? Dying? No, I suppose not. It would be too much to expect. Said Death sourly. They leave it all to me. Who do? Said Varenz, mystified. Fate, destiny, all the rest of them. Death laid a hand on the king's shoulder. The fact is, I'm afraid, you're due to become a ghost. Oh. He looked down at his body, which seemed solid enough. Then someone walked through him. Don't let it upset you. Varenz watched his own stiff corpse being carried reverentially from the hall. I'll try. He said. Good man. 
I don't think I would be up to all that business with the white sheets and the chains, though, he said. Do I have to walk around moaning and screaming? Death shrugged. Do you want to? He said. No. Then I shouldn't bother if I were you. Death pulled an hourglass from the recesses of his dark robe and inspected it closely. And now I really must be going. He said. He turned on his heel, put his scythe over his shoulder, and started to walk out of the hall through the wall. I say, just hold on there, shouted Varenz, running after him. Death didn't look back. Varenz followed him through the wall. It was like walking through fog. Is that all? he demanded. I mean, how long will I be a ghost? Why am I a ghost? You can't just leave me like this. He halted and raised an imperious, slightly transparent finger. Stop! I command you! Death shook his head gloomily and stepped through the next wall. The king hurried after him with as much dignity as he could still muster and found Death fiddling with the girths of a large white horse standing on the battlements. It was wearing a nosebag. You can't leave me like this! he repeated in the face of the evidence. Death turned to him. I can. You're undead, you see. Ghosts inhabit a world between the living and the dead. It's not my responsibility. He patted the king on the shoulder. Don't worry. It won't be forever. Good. It may seem like forever. How long will it really be? Until you have fulfilled your destiny, I assume. And how will I know what my destiny is? Said the king desperately. Can't help there, I'm sorry. Well, how can I find out? These things generally become apparent, I understand. Said Death and swung himself into the saddle. And until then I have to haunt this place? King Varence stared around at the drafty battlements. All alone, I suppose. Won't anyone be able to see me? Oh, the psychically inclined. Close relatives. And cats, of course. I hate cats. Death's face became a little stiffer, if that were possible. The blue glow in his eye sockets flickered red for an instant. I see, he said. The tone suggested that death was too good for cat-haters. You like great big dogs, I imagine. As a matter of fact, I do. The king stared gloomily at the dawn. His dogs. He'd really miss his dogs, and it looked like such a good hunting day. He wondered if ghosts hunted. Almost certainly not, he imagined. Or ate. Or drank either, for that matter. And that was really depressing. He liked a big noisy banquet and had quaffed. Quaffing is like drinking, but you spill more. Many a pint of good ale, and bad ale come to that. He'd never been able to tell the difference till the following morning, usually. He kicked despondently at a stone and noted gloomily that his foot went right through it. No hunting, drinking, carousing, no wassailing, no hawking. It was dawning on him that the pleasures of the flesh were pretty sparse without the flesh. Suddenly life wasn't worth living. The fact that he wasn't living it didn't seem to cheer him up at all.
Some people like to be ghosts, said Death. Hmm, said Varence gloomily. It's not such a wrench, I assume. They can see how their descendants get on. Sorry, is something the matter? But Varence had vanished into the wall. Don't mind me, will you? said Death peevishly. He looked around him with a gaze that could see through time and space and the souls of men, and noted a landslide in distant Clatch, a hurricane in Howanderland, a plague in Hergen. Busy, busy, he muttered, and spurred his horse into the sky. Ferenc ran through the walls of his own castle. His feet barely touched the ground. In fact, the unevenness of the floor meant that at times they didn't touch the ground at all. As a king, he was used to treating servants as if they were not there, and running through them as a ghost was almost the same. The only difference was that they didn't stand aside. Berentz reached the nursery, saw the broken door, and trailed sheets. Heard the hoofbeats. He reached the window, saw his own horse go full tilt through the open gateway in the shafts of the coach. A few seconds later, three horsemen followed it. The sounds of hooves echoed for a moment on the cobbles and died away. The king thumped the sill, his fist going several inches into the stone. Then he pushed his way out into the air, disdaining to notice the drop, and half flew, half ran down across the courtyard and into the stables. It took him a mere twenty seconds to learn that, to the great many things a ghost cannot do, should be added the mounting of a horse. He did succeed in getting into the saddle, or at least straddling the air just above it, but when the horse finally bolted, terrified beyond belief at the mysterious things happening behind its ears, Berentz was left sitting astride five feet of fresh air. He tried to run, and got about as far as the gateway before the air around him thickened to the consistency of tar. You can't, said a sad old voice behind him. You have to stay where you were killed. It's what haunting means. Take it from me, I know. Granny Weatherwax paused with a second scone halfway to her mouth. Something comes, she said. Can you tell by the pricking of your thumbs, said McGrat earnestly. McGrat had learned a lot about witchcraft from books. The pricking of my ears, said Granny. She raised her eyebrows at Nanny Og. Old Goody Wemper had been an excellent witch in her way, but far too fanciful. Too many flowers and romantic notions and such. The occasional flash of lightning showed the moorland stretching down to the forest, but the rain on the warm summer earth had filled the air with mist wraiths. Hoofbeats, said Nanny Og. No one would come up here this time of night. McGrath peered around timidly. Here and there on the moors were huge standing stones, their origins lost in time, which were said to lead mobile and private lives of their own. She shivered. What's to be afraid of? She managed. Us, said Granny Weatherwax smugly. The hoofbeats neared and slowed. 
and then the coach rattled between the furze bushes, its horses hanging in their harnesses. The driver leapt down, ran around to the door, pulled a large bundle from inside and dashed towards the trio. He was halfway across the damp peat when he stopped and stared at Granny Weatherwax with a look of horror. It's all right, she whispered, and the whisper cut through the grumbling of the storm as clearly as a bell. She took a few steps forward, and a convenient lightning flash allowed her to look directly into the man's eyes. They had the peculiarity of focus that told those who had the know that he was no longer looking at anything in this world. With a final, jerking movement, he thrust the bundle into Granny's arms and toppled forward, the feathers of a crossbow bolt sticking out of his back. Three figures moved into the firelight. Granny looked up into another pair of eyes, which were as chilly as the slopes of hell. Their owner threw his crossbow aside. There was a glimpse of chainmail under his sodden cloak as he drew his sword. He didn't flourish it. The eyes that didn't leave Granny's face weren't the eyes of anyone who bothers about flourishing things. They were the eyes of one who knows exactly what swords are for. He reached out his hand. You will give it to me, he said. Granny twitched aside the blanket in her arms and looked down at a small face wrapped in sleep. She looked up. No, she said on general principles. The soldier glanced from her to Magrat and Nanny Og, who were as still as the standing stones of the moor. You are witches, he said. Granny nodded. Lightning skewered down from the sky and a bush a hundred yards away blossomed into fire. The two soldiers behind the man muttered something, but he smiled and raised a mailed hand. Does the skin of witches turn aside steel? he said. Not that I'm aware, said Granny levelly. You could give it a try. One of the soldiers stepped forward and touched the man's arm gingerly. Sir, with respect, sir, it's not a good idea. Be silent. But it's terrible bad luck to- Must I ask you again? Sir, said the man. His eyes caught Granny's for a moment and reflected hopeless terror. The leader grinned at Granny, who hadn't moved a muscle. Your peasant magic is for fools, mother of the night. I can strike you down where you stand. Then strike, man, said Granny, looking over her shoulder. If your heart tells you, strike as hard as you dare. The man raised his sword. Lightning speared down again, split a stone a few yards away, filling the air with smoke and the stink of burnt silicone. Missed, he said smugly, and Granny saw his muscles tense as he prepared to bring the sword down. A look of extreme puzzlement crossed his face. He tilted his head sideways and opened his mouth, as if trying to come to terms with a new idea. His sword dropped out of his hand and landed point downwards in the peat. Then he gave a sigh and folded up, very gently, collapsing in a heap at Granny's feet. She gave him a gentle prod with her toe. Perhaps you weren't aware of what I was aiming at, she whispered. Mother of the night, indeed.
The soldier who had tried to restrain the man stared in horror at the bloody dagger in his hand and backed away. I... I... I couldn't let... He shouldn't have... It's... It's not right to... He stuttered. Are you from around these parts, young man? Said Granny. He dropped to his knees. Mad wolf, Mum, he said. He stared back at the fallen captain. They'll kill me now, he wailed. But you did what you thought was right, said Granny. I didn't become a soldier for this, not to go around killing people. Exactly right. If I was you, I'd become a sailor, said Granny, thoughtfully. Yes, a nautical career. I should start as soon as possible. Now, in fact. Run off, man. Run off to sea where there are no tracks. You will have a long and successful life, I promise. She looked thoughtful for a moment and added, At least longer than it's likely to be if you hang around here. He pulled himself upward, gave her a look, compounded of gratitude and awe, and ran off into the mist. And now perhaps someone will tell us what this is all about, said Granny, turning to the third man. To where the third man had been. There was the distant drumming of hoofs on the turf, and then silence. Nanny Og hobbled forward. I could catch him, she said. What do you think? Granny shook her head. She sat down on a rock and looked at the child in her arms. It was a boy, no more than two years old and quite naked under the blanket. She rocked him vaguely and stared at nothing. Nanny Og examined the two corpses with an air of one for whom laying out holds no fears. Perhaps they were bandits, said McGrath tremulously. Nanny shook her head. A strange thing, she said. They both wear this same badge. Two bears on a black and gold shield. Anyone know what that means? It's the badge of King Varenz, said Magrat. Who's he? said Granny Weatherwax. He rules this country, said Magrat. Oh, that king, said Granny, as if the matter was hardly worth noting. Soldiers fighting one another doesn't make sense, said Nanny Og. Magrat, have a look in the coach. The youngest witch poked around inside the bodywork and came back with a sack. She upended it and something thudded onto the turf. The storm had rumbled off to the other side of the mountain now and the watery moon shed a thin gruel of light over the damp moorland. It also gleamed off what was, without any doubt, an extremely important crown. It's a crown, said McGrath. It's got all spiky bits on it. Oh, dear, said Granny. The child gurgled in its sleep. Granny Weatherwax didn't hold with looking at the future, but now she could feel the future looking at her. She didn't like its expression at all. King Varence was looking at the past, and he had formed pretty much the same view. You can see me, he said. Oh, yes, quite clearly, in fact, said the newcomer. Varence's brows knotted. Being a ghost seemed to require considerably more mental effort than being alive. 
He'd managed quite well for forty years without having to think more than once or twice a day, and now he was doing it all the time. Ah, he said, you're a ghost too. Well spotted. It was the head under your arm, said Varence, pleased with himself, that gave me a clue. Does it bother you? I can put it back on if it bothers you, said the old ghost helpfully. He extended his free hand. Pleased to meet you. I'm Champot, King of Lancre. Varence, likewise. He peered down at the old king's features and added, Don't seem to recall seeing your picture in the long gallery. Oh, all that was after my time, said Champot dismissively. How long have you been here, then? Champot reached down and rubbed his nose. About a thousand years, he said, his voice tinged with pride. Man and ghost? A thousand years? I built this place, in fact. Just got it nicely decorated when my nephew cut my head off while I was asleep. I can't tell you how much that upset me. But a thousand years, Varence repeated weakly. Champot took his arm. It's not that bad, he confided, as he led the unresisting king across the courtyard. Better than being alive in many ways. They must be bloody strange ways, then, snapped Varence. I liked being alive. Champot grinned reassuringly. You'll soon get used to it, he said. I don't want to get used to it. You've got a strong morphogenic field, said Champot. I can tell I look for these things. Yes, very strong, I should say. What's that? I was never very good with words, you know, said Champot. I always found it easier to hit people with something. But I gather it all boils down to how alive you were when you were alive. I mean, something called... He paused. Animal vitality. Yes, that was it. Animal vitality. The more you had, the more you stay yourself, as it were if you're a ghost. I expect you were 100% alive when you were alive, he added. Despite himself, Varence felt flattered. I tried to keep myself busy, he said. They had strolled through the wall into the great hall, which was now empty. The sight of the trestle tables triggered off an automatic reaction in the king. How do we go about getting breakfast, he said. Champot's head looked surprised. We don't, he said. We're ghosts. But I'm hungry. You're not, you know. It's just your imagination. There was a clattering from the kitchens. The cooks were already up, and in the absence of any other instructions, were preparing the castle's normal breakfast menu. Familiar smells were wafting up from the dark archway that led to the kitchens. Berent sniffed. Sausages, he said dreamily. Bacon, eggs, smoked fish. He stared at Champot. Black pudding, he whispered. You haven't actually got a stomach, the old ghost pointed out. It's all in the mind, just force of habit. You just think you're hungry. 
I think I'm ravenous. Yes, but you can't actually touch anything, you see, Jampot explained gently. Nothing at all. Berentz lowered himself gently onto a bench so that he did not drift through it and sank his head in his hands. He'd heard that death could be bad. He just hadn't realized how bad. He wanted revenge. He wanted to get out of this suddenly horrible castle to find his son. But he was even more terrified to find that what he really wanted right now was a plate of kidneys. A damp dawn flooded across the landscape, scaled the battlements of Loncra Castle, stormed the keep, and finally made it through the casement of the solar. Duke Felmet stared out gloomily at the dripping forest. There was such a lot of it. It wasn't, he'd decided, that he had anything against trees as such. It was just that the sight of so much of them was terribly depressing. He kept wanting to count them. Indeed, my love he said. The Duke put those who met him in mind of some sort of lizard, possibly the type that lives on volcanic islands, moves once a day, has a vestigial third eye and blinks on a monthly basis. He considered himself to be a civilised man more suited to the dry air and bright sun of a properly organised climate. On the other hand, he mused, it might be nice to be a tree. Trees didn't have ears, he was pretty sure of this, and they seemed to manage without the blessed state of matrimony. A male oak tree, he'd have to look this up, a male oak tree just shed its pollen on the breeze and all the business with the acorns, unless it was oak apples, no, he was pretty sure it was acorns, took place somewhere else. Yes, my precious, he said. Yes, trees had got it all worked out. Duke Felmet glared at the forest roof, Selfish bastards. Certainly, my dear, he said. What? said the Duchess. The Duke hesitated, desperately trying to replay the monologue of the last five minutes. There had been something about him being half a man and infirm on purpose, and he was sure there had been a complaint about the coldness of the castle. Yes, that was probably it. Well, those wretched trees could do a decent day's work for once. I'll have some of them cut down and brought in directly, my cherished, he said. Lady Felmont was momentarily speechless. This was by way of being a calendar event. She was a large and impressive woman who gave people confronting her for the first time the impression that they were seeing a galleon under full sail. The effect was rather heightened by her unfortunate belief that red velvet rather suited her. However, it didn't set off her complexion. It matched it. The Duke often mused on his good luck in marrying her. If it wasn't for the engine of her ambition, he'd be just another local lord, with nothing much to do but hunt, drink, and exercise his droit de seigneur. Whatever that was, he'd never found anyone prepared to explain it to him. But it was definitely something a feudal lord ought to have, and he was pretty sure it needed regular exercise. He imagined it was some kind of large hairy dog, he was definitely going to get one, and damn well exercise it. Instead, he was now just a step away from the throne, and might soon be monarch of all he surveyed. Provided that all he surveyed was trees, he sighed. Cut what down, 
said Lady Felmont icily. Oh, the trees, said the Duke. What have trees got to do with it? Well, the such a lot of them, said the Duke with feeling. Don't change the subject. Sorry, my sweet. What I said was, how could you have been so stupid as to let them get away? I told you that servant was far too loyal. You can't trust someone like that. No, my love. You didn't by any chance consider sending someone after them, I suppose. Benson, my dear, and a couple of guards. Oh. The Duchess paused. Benson, as captain of the Duke's personal bodyguard, was as efficient a killer as a psychotic mongoose. He would have been her choice. It annoyed her to be temporarily deprived of the chance to fault her husband, but she rallied quite well. He wouldn't have needed to go out at all if you'd only listened to me, but you never do. Do what, my passion? The Duke yawned. It had been a long night. There had been a thunderstorm of quite unnecessarily dramatic proportions, and then there had been all that messy business with the knives. It has already been mentioned that Duke Felmont was one step away from the throne. The step in question was at the top of the flight leading to the Great Hall, down which King Varence had tumbled in the dark only to land against all the laws of probability on his own dagger. It had, however, been declared by his own physician to be a case of natural causes. Benson had gone to see the man and explained that falling down a flight of steps with a dagger in your back was a disease caused by unwise opening of the mouth. In fact, it had already been caught by several members of the king's own bodyguard who had been a little bit hard of hearing. It had been a minor epidemic. The duke shuddered. There were details about last night that were both hazy and horrible. He tried to reassure himself that all the unpleasantness was over now and he had a kingdom. It wasn't much of one, apparently being mainly trees, but it was a kingdom and he had a crown. If they could only find it. Lancre Castle was built on an outcrop of rock by an architect who had heard about Gormenghast, but hadn't got the budget. He'd done his best, though, with a tiny confection of cut-priced turrets, bargain basements, buttresses, crenellations, gargoyles, towers, courtyards, keeps and dungeons. In fact, just about everything a castle needs, except maybe reasonable foundations and the kind of mortar that doesn't wash away in a light shower. The castle leaned vertiginously over the racing white water of the Lancre River, which boomed darkly a thousand feet below. Every now and again, a few bits fell in. Small as it was, though, the castle contained a thousand places to hide a crown. The Duchess swept out to find someone else to berate, and left Lord Felmont looking gloomily at the landscape. It started to rain. It was on this queue that there came a thunderous knocking at the castle door. It seriously disturbed the castle porter, who was playing cripple Mr Onion with the castle cook and the castle's fool in the warmth of the kitchen. He growled and stood up. There's a knocking without, he said. Without what? said the fool. Without the door, idiot. The fool gave him a worried look. A knocking without a door? 
he said suspiciously. This isn't some kind of zen, is it? When the porter had grumbled off in the direction of the gatehouse, the cook pushed another farthing into the kitty and looked sharply over his cards at the fool. What's a zen? he said. The fool's bells tinkled as he sorted through his cards. Without thinking, he said, Oh, a subsect of the Turnwise Clatch philosophical system of some tin, noted for its simple austerity and the offer of personal tranquility and the wholeness achieved through meditation and breathing techniques. An interesting aspect is the asking of apparently nonsensical questions in order to widen the doors of perception. How's that again? said the cook suspiciously. He was on edge. When he'd taken the breakfast up to the great hall, he'd kept getting the feeling that someone was trying to take the tray out of his hands. And as if that wasn't bad enough, this new duke had sent him back for, he shuddered, oatmeal and a runny boiled egg. The cook was too old for this sort of thing. He was set in his ways. He was a cook in the real feudal tradition. If it didn't have an apple in its mouth and you couldn't roast it, he didn't want to serve it. The fool hesitated with a card in his hand, suppressed his panic and thought quickly. A faith, uncle, he squeaked. Thou art more full of questions than a martlebury is full of mizzen sails. The cook relaxed. Well, okay, he said, not entirely satisfied. The fool lost the next three hands, just to be on the safe side. The porter, meanwhile, unfastened the hatch at the wicket gate and peered out. Who does knock without? he growled. The soldier, drenched and terrified though he was, hesitated. Without? Without what? he said. If you're gonna bugger about, you can bloody well stay without all day, said the porter calmly. No, I must see the Duke upon the instant, shouted the guard. Witches are abroad! The porter was about to come back with, Good time of year for it, or wish I was too but stopped when he saw the man's face. It wasn't the face of a man who would enter into the spirit of the thing. It was the look of someone who had seen things a decent man shouldn't wot of. Witches, said Lord Felmet. Witches, said the Duchess. In the drafty corridors, a voice as faint as the wind in distant keyholes said with a note of hope, Witches? psychically inclined. It's meddling, that's what it is, said Granny Weatherwax, and no good will come of it. It's very romantic, said McGrath breathily and heaved a sigh. Gucci goo, said Nanny Og. Anyway, said McGrath, you killed that horrid man. I never did. I just encouraged things to take their course. Granny Weatherwax frowned. He didn't have no respect. Once people lose their respect, it means trouble. Izzy, wizzy, wazzy, duh. The other man brought him here to save him, shouted McGrath. He wanted us to keep him safe. It's obvious. It's destiny. Oh, obvious, said Granny. I'll grant you it's obvious. Trouble is, just because things are obvious doesn't mean they're true. She weighed the crown in her hands. It felt very heavy. 
in a way that went beyond mere pounds and ounces. Yes, but the point is, McGrath began. The point is, said Granny, that people are going to come looking. Serious people. Serious looking. Pull down the walls and burn off the thatch looking. And... How's a boy, And, Gaither, I'm sure we'll all be a lot happier if you stop gurgling like that. Granny snapped. She could feel her nerves coming on. Her nerves always played up when she was unsure about things. Besides, they had retired to McGrath's cottage and the decor was getting to her, because McGrath believed in nature's wisdom and elves and the healing power of colours and the cycle of the season and a lot of other things that Granny Weatherwax didn't have any truck with. You're not after telling me how to look after a child, snapped Nanny Og mildly. And me with fifteen of my own? I'm just saying we ought to think about it, said Granny. The other two watched her for some time. Well, said McGrath. Granny's fingers drummed on the edge of the crown. She frowned. First, we've got to take him away from here, she said, and held up a hand. No, Gaither, I'm sure your cottage is ideal and everything, but it's not safe. He's got to go somewhere away from here, a long way away, where no one knows who he is. And then there's this. She tossed the crown from hand to hand. Oh, that's easy, said McGrath. I mean, you just hide it under a stone or something. That's easy, much easier than babies. It ain't, said Granny. The reason being the country's full of babies and they all look the same, but I don't reckon there's many crowns. They have this way of being found anyway. They kind of call out to people's minds. If you bunged it under a stone up here in a week's time, it'd get itself discovered by accident, you mark my words. It's true, is that, said Nanny Og earnestly. How many times have you thrown a magic ring into the deepest depths of the ocean and then when you get home and have a nice bit of turbot for your tea, there it is. They considered this in silence. Never, said Granny irritably, and nor have you. Anyway, he might want it back. If it's rightfully his, that is. King set a lot of store by crowns. Really, Gaither, sometimes you say the most. I'll just make the tea, shall I? Said McGrath brightly and disappeared into the scullery. The two elderly witches sat on either side of the table in polite and prickly silence. Finally, Nanny Og said, she done it up nice, hasn't she? Flowers and everything. What are them things on the walls? Sigils, said Granny sourly, or some such. Fancy, said Nanny Og politely. And all them robes and wands and things too. <laughs> Modern, said Granny Weatherwax with a sniff. When I was a girl, we had a lump of wax and a couple of pins and had to be content. We had to make our own enchantment in them days. Ah, well, we've all passed a lot of water since then, said Nanny Og sagely. She gave the baby a comforting jiggle. Granny Weatherwax sniffed. Nanny Og had been married three times and ruled a tribe of children and grandchildren all over the kingdom. Certainly it was not actually forbidden for witches to get married. Granny had to concede that, but reluctantly, very reluctantly. She sniffed again, disapprovingly. 
This was a mistake. What's that smell? She snapped. Ah, said Nanny Og, carefully repositioning the baby. I expect I'll just go and see if Magrat has any clean rags, shall I? And now Granny was left alone. She felt embarrassed, as one always does when left alone in someone else's room, and fought the urge to get up and inspect the books on the shelf over the sideboard, or examine the mantelpiece for dust. She turned the crown round and round in her hands. Again, it gave the impression of being bigger and heavier than it actually was. She caught sight of the mirror over the mantelpiece and looked down at the crown. It was tempting. It was practically begging her to try it on for size. Well, why not? She made sure the others weren't around and then, in one movement, whipped off her hat and placed the crown on her head. It seemed to fit. Granny drew herself up proudly and waved a hand imperiously at the general direction of the hearth. Jolly well do this, she said. She beckoned arrogantly at the grandfather clock. Chop his head off, what ho? She commanded. She smiled grimly. And froze as she heard the screams and the thunder of horses and the deadly whisper of arrows and the damp, solid sound of spears in flesh. Charge after charge echoed across her skull. Sword met shield, or sword, or bone, relentlessly. Years streamed across her mind in the space of a second. There were times when she lay among the dead, or hanging from the branch of a tree, but always there were hands that would pick her up again and place her on a velvet cushion. Granny very carefully lifted the crown off her head. It was an effort, it didn't like it much, and laid it on the table. So that's being a king for you, is it? She said softly. I wonder why they all want the job. Do you take sugar? said McGrath behind her. You'd have to be a born fool to be a king, said Granny. Sorry? Granny turned. Didn't see you come in, she said. What was it you said? Sugar in your tea? Three spoons, said Granny promptly. It was one of the few sorrows of Granny Weatherwax's life that, despite all her efforts, she'd arrived at the peak of her career with a complexion like a rosy apple and all her teeth. No amount of charms could persuade a wart to take root on her handsome, if slightly equine features, and vast intakes of sugar only served to give her boundless energy. A wizard she'd consulted had explained it was on account of her having a metabolism, which at least allowed her to feel vaguely superior to Nanny Og, who she suspected had never even seen one. McGrath dutifully dug out three heaped ones. Be nice, she thought wistfully, if someone would say thank you occasionally. She became aware that the crown was staring at her. You can feel it, can you? said Granny. I said, didn't I? Crowns call out. It's horrible. No, no, it's just being what it is, it can't help it. But it's magic. It's just being what it is, Granny repeated. It's trying to get me to try it on, said McGrath, her hand hovering. It does that, yes. But I shall be strong, said McGrath. So I should think, said Granny, her expression suddenly curiously wooden. 
What's Gytha doing? She's giving the baby a wash in the sink, said McGrath vaguely. How can we hide something like this? What'd happen if we buried it really deeply somewhere? A badger would dig it up, said Granny wearily. Or someone would go prospecting for gold or something. Or a tree would tangle its roots around it and then be blown over in a storm and then someone would pick it up and put it on. Unless they were as strong-minded as us, McGrath pointed out. Unless that, of course, said Granny, staring at her fingernails. Though the thing with crowns is, it isn't the putting them on that's the problem, it's the taking them off. It's not as though it even looks much like a crown, she said. You've seen a lot, I expect, said Granny. You'd be an expert on them, naturally. Seen a fair few. They've got a lot more jewels on them and cloth bits in the middle, said McGrath defiantly. This is just a thin little thing. McGrath garlic. I have, when I was being trained up by Goody Wimper. May she rest in peace. May she rest in peace. She used to take me over to Razorback or to Loncra whenever the strolling players were in town. She was very keen on the theatre. They've got more crowns than you can shake a stick at, although, mind... She paused. Goody did say that they were made of tin and paper and stuff, and just glass for the jewels, but they look more realer than this one. Do you think that's strange? Things that try to look like things often do look more like things than things. Well-known fact, said Granny. But I don't hold with encouraging it. What do they stroll about playing, then, in these crowns? You don't know about the theatre, said McGrath. Granny Weatherwax, who never declared her ignorance of anything, didn't hesitate. Oh, yes, she said. It's one of them styles of things, then, is it? Goody Wemper said it held a mirror up to life, said McGrath. She said it always cheered her up. I expect it would, said Granny, striking out. Played properly, at any rate. Good people, are they? These theatre players? I think so. And they stroll around the country, you say? Said Granny thoughtfully, looking towards the scullery door. All over the place. There's a troupe in Lancre now, I heard. I haven't been because, you know... McGrath looked down. Tis not right, a woman going into a, such places by herself. Granny nodded. She thoroughly approved of such sentiments, so long as there was, of course, no suggestion that they applied to her. She drummed her fingers on McGrath's tablecloth. Right, she said. And why not? Go and tell Gytha to wrap the baby up well. It's a long time since I heard a theatre played properly. McGrath was entranced, as usual. The theatre was no more than some lengths of painted sacking. A plank stage, laid over a few barrels, and half a dozen benches set out in the village square. But at the same time, it also managed to become the castle, another part of the castle, the same part a little later, the battlefield, and now it was a road outside the city. The afternoon would have been perfect if it wasn't for Granny Weatherwax. 
After several piercing glares at the three-man orchestra to see if she could work out which instrument the theatre was, the old witch had finally paid attention to the stage, and it was beginning to become apparent to McGrath that there were certain fundamental aspects of the theatre that Granny had not yet grasped. She was currently bouncing up and down on her stool with rage. He's killed him, she hissed. Why isn't anyone doing anything about it? He's killed him, and right up there in front of everyone. McGrath held on desperately to her colleague's arms as she struggled to get to her feet. It's all right, she whispered. He's not dead. Are you calling me a liar, my girl? snapped Granny. I saw it all. Look, Granny, it's not really real, do you see? Granny Weatherwax subsided a little, but still grumbled under her breath. She was beginning to feel that things were trying to make a fool of her. Up on the stage, a man in a sheet was giving a spirited monologue. Granny listened intently for some minutes and then nudged McGrath in the ribs. What's he on about now? she demanded. He's saying how sorry he was that the other man's dead, said McGrath, and in an attempt to change the subject, added hurriedly, there's a lot of crowns, isn't there? Granny was not to be distracted. What do you go and kill him for, then? She said. Well, it's a bit complicated, said McGrath weakly. It's shameful, snapped Granny, and the poor dead thing's still lying there. McGrath gave an imploring look to Nanny Og, who was masticating an apple and studying the stage with the glare of a research scientist. I reckon, she said slowly, I reckon it's all just pretending. Look, he's still breathing. The rest of the audience, who by now had already decided that this commentary was all part of the play, stared as one man at the corpse. It blushed. And look at his boots, too, said Nanny critically. A real king would be ashamed of boots like that. The corpse tried to shuffle its feet behind a cardboard bush. Granny, feeling in some obscure way that they had scored a minor triumph over the purveyors of untruth and artifice, helped herself to an apple from the bag and began to take a fresh interest. McGrath's nerves started to unknot, and she began to settle down to enjoy the play. But not, as it turned out, for very long. Her willing suspension of disbelief was interrupted by a voice saying, What's this bit? McGrath sighed. Well, she hazarded, he thinks that he is the prince, but he's really the other king's daughter dressed up as a man. Granny subjected the actor to a long, analytical stare. He is a man, she said, in a straw wig, making his voice squeaky. McGrath shuddered. She knew a little about the conventions of the theatre. She had been dreading this bit. Granny Weatherwax had views. Yes, but, she said wretchedly, it's the theatre, see? All the women are played by men. Why? They don't allow no women on the stage, said McGrath in a small voice. She shut her eyes. In fact, there was no outburst from the seat on her left. She risked a quick glance. Granny was quietly chewing the same bit of apple over and over again, her eyes never leaving the action. 
Don't make a fuss, Esme, said Nanny, who also knew about Granny's views. This is a good bit. I reckon I'm getting the hang of it. Someone tapped Granny on the shoulder, and a voice said, Madam, will you kindly remove your hat? Granny turned around very slowly on her stool, as though propelled by hidden motors, and subjected the interrupter to a hundred-kilowatt diamond blue stare. The man wilted under it and sagged back on his stool, her face following him all the way down. No, she said. He considered the options. All right, he said. Granny turned back and nodded to the actors who had paused to watch her. I don't know what you're staring at, she growled. Get on with it. Nanny Og passed her another bag. Have a humbug, she said. Silence again filled the makeshift theatre except for the hesitant voices of the actors who kept glancing at the bristling figure of Granny Weatherwax and the sucking sounds of a couple of boiled humbugs being relentlessly churned from cheek to cheek. Then Granny said in a piercing voice that made one actor drop his wooden sword, There's a man over on the side there whispering to them. He's a prompter, said Magrat. He tells them what to say. Don't they know? I think they're forgetting, said Magrat sourly, for some reason. Granny nudged Nanny Og. What's going on now, she said. Why are all them kings and people up there? It's a banquet, see, said Nanny Og authoritatively. Because the dead king, him in the boots as was, only now if you look you'll see he's pretending to be a soldier, and everyone's making speeches about how good he was and wondering who killed him. Are they? said Granny grimly. She cast her eyes along the cast, looking for the murderer. She was making up her mind. Then she stood up, her black shawl billowing around her like the wings of an avenging angel, come to rid the world of all that was foolishness and pretense and artifice and sham. She seemed somehow a lot bigger than normal. She pointed an angry finger at the guilty party. He done it, she shouted triumphantly. We all seed him. He done it with a dagger. The audience filed out, contented. It had been a good play on the whole, they decided, although not very easy to follow. But it had been a jolly good laugh when all the kings had run off, and the woman in black had jumped up and did all the shouting. That alone had been well worth the halfpenny admission. The three witches sat alone on the edge of the stage. I wonder how they get all them kings and lords to come here and do this, said Granny, totally unabashed. I'd have thought they'd have been too busy ruling and similar. No, said McGrath wearily. I still don't think you quite understand. Well, I'm going to get to the bottom of it, snapped Granny. She got back on the stage and pulled aside the sacking curtains. You, she shouted, you're dead. The luckless former corpse, who was eating a ham sandwich to calm his nerves, fell backwards off his stool. Granny kicked a bush. Her boot went right through it. See, she said to the world in general in a strangely satisfied voice, nothing's real. It's all just paint and sticks and paper at the back. 
End of CD 1